This is The Fire These Times, and I'm your host, Julia Yup. In this third season, we will be exploring internationalist solidarity, prefigurative politics, solar punk, and how to tackle some of the most pressing challenges of our times. Each episode will be on one or more of these topics. But before getting into today's topic, I wanted to quickly tell you that you can support this podcast for as little as $2 or $5 a month on patreon.com slash fire these times. That is patreon.com slash fire these times. If you cannot donate, you can still support by sharing it with your friends and families and leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps it get more exposure and introduce it to more folks. That's it for me today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi everyone and hi Joey, thank you so much for having me on here. Uh, my name is, is Daniel. I live in Barcelona in Spain. I come from, from Argentina from, to, to Russia and to British parents. Um, and I work, I've worked for the last decade, I guess, in the climate justice movement. I work as a, as a writer, as a researcher, as an artist. And I guess my passion is for the intersections of historical memory, ecology, public health, and justice. What are the ways in which um, these come together? What are the ways in which we can find um, ways that these different streams can sing to each other? So yeah, that's, that's where I come from. And so far, you and I, like, other than just chatting on the side and being good friends and stuff, we did two, one thing publicly and, uh, well, one thing not, I mean, publicly, whatever, one thing online and one thing offline. Um, well, let's start with that. I figured it, I, th- I think it would be a good thing to mention uh, the Ukraine and Syria uh, panel that I hosted um, some months ago. I don't remember when it was, as well as the trip that the both you and I took to Coimbra in Portugal, because I think the themes of the fir- in the first case uh, internationalism, in the second case uh, climate in general, as well as the intersection of those two, which I think, especially in the second case, we we kind of explored a bit more. Uh, they would they would kind of make a good I think mm. kind of pillar in some sense to to kind of anchor our conversation if that makes sense. Beautiful, yeah. So I think that we can t- tell the story of how we first came together. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, your work has been phenomenal for so many years in terms of I think representing what I see as the highest international spirit, the spirit of bringing people together um, uh, from different experiences, but with with parallel experiences as well and finding their shared power in their common experience. Um, I think at the time when, um, when the invasion of Ukraine began, mm-hmm. um, obviously uh, I felt a need, from, along with many others, to do what we could to, to support, but also to find ways in which um, conversations could be built that could um, um, bring people with existing experience and knowledge to the fore to speak across borders and start weaving together a stronger movement. Um, I'm part of a collective called Post-Extractive Futures, which has at its core this ethos, right? How do we, the kind of key question that animates that collective is, what is it that we can do together that we can't do alone? And so, you know, with, with, with a bunch of people, we put different Ukrainian and Syrian voices in conversation to talk about the shared experience of, of Russian imperialism, among, uh, among other imperialisms, but also about what does it mean to be in this position? Um, what a... What are the things that we can learn from each other? How do you confront um, certain forms of, of erasure and exclusion and hostility, especially from quote-unquote progressive uh, or uh, false uh, kind of allies in a way? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's something, I think that binds me and you is, a, is a, I think, a shared political vision that it's important to erase the borders 
um, that have been imposed by geography or by politics and to build, um, I think, other distinctions that are more important between justice and injustice, between um, solidarity and, 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 and evasion. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a little bit about the Ukraine and Syria event that we did. And what about the Coimbra one, for those who don't know? Yeah, so in Coimbra, we came together as part of, I guess, a, a, a plurivisal justice summer school. So this is plurivisal for those might um, hearing. It's a way of combining the words plurality and universe, the idea that the world should be one where, um, where different worlds fit, not just a mono world, a monoculture of a world. And so different academics and activists got together in Coimbra in the summer to discuss different visions of social, economic, and climate justice and what these look like in a city, what these look like in rural environments. And uh, so we also had the, had the blessing to, to meet there, but also travel together there. I think this was something very beautiful. We share a love of slow travel, mm -hmm. of, of another way of moving ecologically through the world. And I think that was also a beautiful, almost ritual of movement, is getting to know you through multiple days of traveling and um, learning about each other as the landscapes uh, changed and learning about the landscapes as we changed as well. Exactly. I, I think in those two kind of, and thank you for the compliments, <laughs> in those, uh, the two, uh, I don't know, events, if you want to call them that way, that we, we took part in, as well as the, the traveling from, in my case, from Geneva to Coimbra, and we met up in Barcelona, and then we continued to Coimbra together. Um, for me, was a way of slowing down the world, if that makes sense, uh, especially the latter part, obviously, but the conversations as well. The Ukraine-Syria one, the the Coimbra one, broadly speaking, as well. And what I mean by that, and maybe that's kind of the wrong metaphor, I'm not sure, but what I mean by that is that we live in a time where, and I think this is kind of becoming well-known in the sense that we're saturated with information, but this isn't necessarily accompanied with more knowledge necessarily or with a greater sense of self or peace with oneself or whatnot there's actually quite a lot of confusion quite a lot of anxiety quite a lot of restlessness i think it's fair to mm -hmm. say at this point and this isn't to say that oh you know previous generations it's not like a nostalgic uh, reminiscing of how things were before the internet or whatever it's more just like trying to in within a phenomenology which is just like the school of thought there is this idea of bracketing so you just pause, like you, you, you're literally bracketing an idea, uh, let's say bracketing fear. And instead of uh, going with what you think you know about fear, you just try and analyze objectively, quote unquote, uh, what, what does fear do? How does it act upon you? What is, you know, uh, maybe it means like increased heart rate, maybe increased, you know, whatever, stuff like that, blurry vision, maybe. And that's not that dissimilar from kind of med meditation practices, uh, more broadly speaking. I think it's just more uh, kind of a Western framework for it. But anyway, mm. all of this to say that this has allowed me and I think allowed you and allowed us together and, and individually and whatnot to look at intersection between um, nominally opposed or maybe disconnected concepts and ideas like the Ukraine and Syria one that we did. So the Ukraine and Syria one that we did, and I hosted it, was with two Syrian academic, uh, well, activists, writers, academics, and two Ukrainian activists and academics. Um, and at first, like, for many people, the only thing that they would have in common is, well, the both of them oppose Russia, because Russia invaded Ukraine, obviously, and Russia continues to, to bomb Syria as well, and bombs Ukraine, obviously, as well. We're recording this uh, towards uh, late December, I, sh I should say, 2022. Um, 
but the more they spoke, the more we kind of realized, all of us, and I think people in the chat as well, there was like a few hundred people attending, that there's actually quite a lot of more things in common. And the things that usually are in common are not necessarily very concrete in the sense that like it might be a feeling, it might be a, I don't know, um, an experience, you know, usually an experience of feeling erased, for example, or not being prioritized mm -hmm. in, in a discourse about your country, for example. And here we're referring to the pseudo-anti-imperialism as, as we usually have, have been calling it, which I think has become a theme of this podcast, despite me. Um, but yeah, so this is kind of, I threw like 10 different things at the same time to see what sticks. But I think this is this is how I like to have these conversations. And we have a few bullet points that we kind of focus on. But what are some of your thoughts and reflections on that first? Oh, that's such a, thank you so much for that fragrant reflection. There's so much there, but I kind of want to start with where you, where you, where you started really, which is this idea of slowing down the world. Mm -hmm. I think to me, you know, I, 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 ecology is something that I see as, as something, a way of uh, relating to the world that is of deep urgency and importance. Um, and it requires, I think, an urgency of slowness. Um, you can't do the work required by ecological literacy without slowing down and listening and putting your feet in the earth of humility. And I think what ties so many of these conversations is in a culture of relentlessness, in a culture of immediacy, in a culture that values certainty in a particular kind of um, masculine, dogmatic way of thinking about the world. Um, deep ecological thinking, which reminds you of your smallness, reminds you of your humility, um, is deeply radical. Mm -hmm. And so I think whether we're talking about um, how to find solidarities between different communities around the world facing empire, facing oppression, facing occupation, facing war, or whether we're talking about what does it mean to cultivate uh, a way of relating to the world around us that is more ecological. Um, it comes down to slowing down and listening and, and shedding, um, I think, a, a, a disposition many of us have to anchor ourselves in uncertainty and really becoming fluent in what it means to be deeply humble and slow. And I think I'm, I'm a student of this. You know, I think I have a lot of work to shed in my discipline to, to become more patient, more slow, more humble. Um, but I'm reminded by so many elders, by so many people that inspire me, that um, the real work of urgent activism isn't about maintaining a, one rhythm all the time. It's about being able to have multiple rhythms. Sometimes you need to be um, incredibly fast and, and there's moments that necessitate urgency. But also sometimes in the urgency, we have to be slow and we have to listen. And I was recently listening to an amazing podcast by the incredible Trisha Hersey. Um, some of you might know Trisha from the, from the Nat Ministry, or also known as the Nat Bishop. But, an incredible academic, author, theologian. And Trisha's got this beautiful reflection on Harriet Tubman, right? Harriet Tubman um, as a legendary activist. I mean, there's so many, we could have 50 podcasts on Harriet Tubman, but um, Trisha's got this reflection that Harriet Tubman, who's doing some of the most urgent work in the world in terms of helping um, enslaved people flee uh, from plantations, even in those times of intense urgency, had to listen to the earth, had to listen to the stars, had to listen to the water, to know how to navigate um, their way out of oppression and find their way to safety. So even people doing the most, quote unquote, urgent, uh, time-pressed, uh, life-threatening work in the world require slowing down to plug into what's meaningful to help them in the quest for justice. So, yeah. What's the name of the podcast? Uh, oh my goodness, I have to... Um, I have to find the podcast for you, but I think Trisha Hersey's just published a book, which I think 
if I'm not mistaken, is called Rest as Resistance. I haven't read it yet. I think it's called Rest as okay. Resistance, a manifesto. Cool, okay. So, um, so in, in what you were saying, I I thought about the, um, what might seem, again, I think this is what we like to do often. We see two things that seem opposed, but they're, they're actually not. And you mentioned like the urgency of slowness. And that's sort of the paradox, or at least at surface level, it might seem like a paradox, um, that the climate crisis or the ecological crisis is two things at the same time. It's very fast uh, by by well by geological standards, by Earth standards. It's very it's a bit too slow by human standards at time, if that makes sense. And but on our from our side, so to speak, in terms of how we react to it, there is this paradox that we need to be fast on certain things, reducing carbon, reducing you know all of that stuff, uh, carbon emissions, and all of, uh, everything else related to it. But at the same time, the problem is, at least to some, to a significant extent, the speed of our world. And by speed, we mean especially the the specific forms of neoliberal capitalism we live in, hyper-consumerism, extractivist economies, that sort of thing. And it kind of feels that it, it it's almost like we're stuck, like we're stuck in a downward spiral, um, some, like if that's the correct metaphor. At the very least, we're stuck on some kind of like, I don't know, like on a wagon, on a train that just keeps on going faster and faster and faster. And it's almost like the only thing that, that the train conductor knows how to do is to just go faster just to see yeah. what happens. And it's almost like it, it's kind of feel, it's not that way, obviously. We know, like, we know that our political decisions, we know that, you know, this isn't to sound conspiratorial or whatever. It just feels sometimes that way that we're living in a world economy, right, that is almost like it's no longer controlled by anyone i.e like it's it's the it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of the the magic hand of the market right the invisible hand of the market it's obviously not that we know governments are involved we know all of these things are involved but it's always like no one is really steering that ship anymore and mm. that sense of um i think what can come out of this feeling eco anxieties, helplessness, uh, hopelessness, cynicism, maybe, you know, desperation, all of those things. I think those are very real emotions and real uh, valid emotions as well. But they they need to be kind of contextualized or maybe linked with one another or with other struggles, other people's experiences and whatnot. Because otherwise, frankly, they just become overwhelming and they become very atomizing, right? Like if you like your there's this beautiful article shared today on thecut.com of like, uh, so a, I forgot the name of the author, but on like, what 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 did it feel like when she when she felt that she was having the, the world's burden on her own shoulders and how she had to find a way to navigate that to understand that it shouldn't be on any one person's shoulders, obviously. So that, that sort of thing. And in all of that, the two temporalities, as I think we might call them, of uh, speed and slowness. Another kind of apparent dichotomy is something that I think the two of us are really into, which is futurisms and also the past. And the past can be hauntings, can be, I think, what you call it, biocultural memory, uh, ecological heritage. And we can kind of play around with it um, to some, like in, in some ways. But talk to us a bit about how you think about the, maybe these two temporalities, if we can use that framework. Mm, such a beautiful question, Joey, and I can't wait to hear also your reflection. Mm. I think to me, um, since one thing that has struck me always, at least about the climate conversation, is the lack of often basic kind of um, 
historical memory. You know, why are we here? Mm -hmm. Like, how is it often in the way that the climate crisis is taught? And I actually, I think I appreciated this much more. I used to work and do kind of workshops in schools. And it's almost as if kids are told um, we're at this kind of species threatening crisis all of a sudden. And so there's no context on how do we get here? What level of ecological violence did it take to get to this point? It's just kind of this, the climate crisis as an apparition rather as a historical process, right? So I think dealing with, with, with memory is crucial for just getting our grips on why is it that we're here? What did it take to reach the level of planetary disruption and climatic disruption that, is, that, we, that we call climate change or climate emergency? Um, but also dipping into history and, to, and, and, and approaching biocultural memory, which is not my, my term, but it's a phrase used by two great uh, academics, Narciso Barrera Basols and Victor Toledo from Mexico. It's this appreciation that um, human communities have been nourishing, protecting, stewarding, safeguarding their ecologies for millennia. That, that, the, that the memory of humanity in relationship with our ecologies is not simple story of just destruction which is often what the climate story is, right? It's a humanity has caused the climate crisis is the mainstream story when we know that that's very clearly not the case. It's an incredibly simplistic story, which what it does is it erases the memory of protection, the, mem the memory of nourishing. I'll give one concrete example, but you know, people have to speak about the phenomenon in the Amazon of terra preta, mm -hmm. which is you know, uh, black earth, this idea that the Amazon is also a, is biodiverse um, to this incredible extent because of the interference and the intervention of, of human communities over millennia who helped make it more biodiverse. It's no mistake that when you look at a map of the world, um, imagine in your mind, what are the most biodiverse regions of the world? Take another map and think, what are the most linguistically and culturally diverse parts of the world? The maps overlap. Mm. Um, human diversity nourishes bio, bio, biological diversity. So I think tapping into the story of memory to me is crucial because it anchors us. It helps us resist a lot of nonsense around the climate crisis. It gives us a bit of a grounding. Um, and it invites us to think about the future in a much more creative way because it, it sees our future as a conversation between our past and between our possibility rather than, I think, the techno-utopian or solutionist ideas that are proposed, which is like, we need to start from scratch. Um, you know, humanity is in need of just innovation when, in fact, human history is one of um, constant uh, interaction and learning with other beings around us. Um, on what it's like to be to be. So I think that's my starting point. I guess is just a, an invitation for us to be more memorious, more 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 willing to look back um, before rushing forward. Um, but how do you see it? I know. I mean, you, your work is always grappled with the past as as almost I think as moral obligation. But I'm curious to to know also how you understand this, at least in the, in the context of the climate crisis too. Yeah. Um... Okay, I'll give a bit of background, but before getting there, uh, one thing, one thought that came to my mind while you were talking is the pretty trendy thing these days of just thinking that all we need to do is to just plant X number of trees. And it doesn't, it feels like it almost doesn't matter, or I mean, we know why, but, but a lot of the studies that have really come out studying the efficiency of that system, of that uh, framework, many of those trees don't survive because they're not planted in the right way or they're kind of planted very quickly or they're planted just for the photo shoots, as we know. Mm. Uh, and it's not a mathematical thing. It's not like we destroyed 10 trees in Portugal. Therefore, if we plant 10 trees in, I don't know, Peru, then we've kind of canceled them, like leveled, leveled the playing field. That's just not how nature works. That's not how most things work. Yeah. But we, it's, it fits 
with him, like I, I think I discovered in a previous conversation that there is an act of violence there because mm. we're trying to force the world uh, that we depend on, the living system that we depend on. And I'm saying we in quotation, what is kind of being done at a kind of the hegemonic level of things, if we want to put it that way, the powers at B, whatever, um, mm -hmm. is that we're trying to force the world to fit a human model and the world just doesn't work that way. And at some point there has to be a reckoning or a if we don't do that, uh, the, obviously the fear is that there is something that breaks and what breaks that can be anything from the, you know, the offshoots or getting to a point where uh, we've uh, unleashed something that can't be controlled anymore, whatever. All of, all of those legitimate fears that we have, um, at least partly or to some significant extent, come from this refusal, I would say. Or inability in some cases. It's not like I'm not. I'm not trying to. I'm being as general as I can in order not to make it turn this into like an individualistic thing that we should do or listeners should do, whatever. But just in a sense of what seems to be the norm these days, mm. it really feels that way. Now, in sense, yeah, I, I been doing this research for a few years now on memory in Lebanon, especially. And after some time, long story short, I got into this a few times uh, on the podcast, but. I understood that my family, and then I started first like myself first only, as in me, my relatives maybe, and then I started kind of growing and growing and kind of expanding that analysis, if you want, of just the role of memory and the role of stories and the, the link between memory and imagination. There's this great term I've mentioned it a few times, like the mnemonic imagination. And it says essentially that it's not that there is a hierarchy between imagination and memory, they're actually, they're, look, those are linguistic categories, and the two of them are intimately linked. You can't have memory without imagination. You can't have imagination without memory. Imagination is always rooted in something, your experience, someone else's experience, and that ultimately has something to do with memories. And your memory is not the same. If you're remembering an event, the most studied one is kind of like 9-11, mm. and people who were there, people who weren't there, and studies that have kind of come out is that their memories of that same event actually changes mm. uh, over time. Like if you remembered it for the fifth time, it's not the same as for the hundredth time, right? And it's not that you forget necessarily, it's more that something, other things happen in, in the process. And so that, that sort of understanding, if you want, led me to almost by, like almost by, almost naturally, if that's the correct term, I'm not sure, to seek, okay, well, this is how we're affected by quote unquote the past. What's the other side of it? Like what's, what's the future? What does futurism look like? And the thing that I think really clicked one day was studying hauntology, which we can get into, and studying these um, alternative futurisms, alternative futures, futurities, this would be another term in some context, of w the what ifs of history, i.e. not taking history for granted. And you can play, you can sort of start this on a uh, not superficial level, but maybe easier level by telling yourself, well, what if this big historical figure had died at this point, or maybe had never existed, or you know, the whole thing of what if someone had killed baby Hitler, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and of course, you can kind of you do this as kind of training, sort of a muscle, you know, a creative muscle, maybe, but won't necessarily give you any answers because by by default you will never, like by definition, you will never know. But you can sort of start that way, maybe, and in that way, you're you're linking directly the past, or what what if that thing in the past hadn't happened, or had happened differently, or whatever, and then you're thinking of well, the future would have looked differently 
because the present would have looked differently. And so everything would have changed. And in our imagination, it's, I think, easier these days because a lot of science fiction movies and whatnot fall under that premise, like the alternative timelines, you know, the, the, so these kinds of things. Like, and the idea of, a, you know, the, the multiple universes as well is in the sense that you may have multiple things, multiple actions, you know, many versions of yourselves in the past, you know, all of these things. It helps at least contextualize the complexity of our current world hmm. and breaks that, um, I think, very ultimately nationalist, reactionary, isolationist, and other isms um, tendency, which is sometimes the, the I, I call it as a, the 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 fall fear based framework in the sense that when you feel overwhelmed by the world, it's easier to kind of fall back on your own um, certainties, and the risk obviously is that today we're seeing the world becoming interlinked in ways at a pace that has never really happened before. Yeah. Like it's, there's no comparison between the pre-internet age and what we're currently experiencing. And as it happens, uh, there is a link there, but it's not, it's not a direct correlation. We're also living in a time of climate um, catastrophe, like urgency, crisis, and potential catastrophe, and already existing catastrophe too, to some extent as well. And those two can, can, can kind of clash with one another, right? We can think of the links that um, quote-unquote populists on the right make between migration and the climate crisis. And this kind of falls very, unfortunately, very neatly into pretty mainstream views of conservation, of ecology, of humans equal problem. And so we need to reduce humans. Obviously, if you scale that up, you you reach pretty dark and and dangerous uh, conclusions. But it's not the conclusions are usually not explicitly mentioned, but the starting points are often that way. And what gets erased is exactly what you mentioned, the example of the Amazon, other examples where humans actually aren't the problem. And I admit, I, I used to think this way. I, I think I was filled with a uh, anger towards humans in general. It's just a a anxiety and angst at what we are doing and it's normal to feel like well we're doing so much and there's so many of us we just need to reduce that we need to stop slow down reduce just stop something needs to stop and it's normal to think that way i think as a normal reaction i should say but that's what it is it's a reaction it's not it doesn't actually say anything that it certainly doesn't move you forward you're just you're acting like by subtractions, right? You just want to reduce and reduce and reduce in order to have fewer things to think about at the end of the day. And that is obviously not, not the way to go. Mm. That's such, there's so much there, but I think, I think this, it kind of, kind of, it links to the fear-based framework that you talk about, but also this idea that you raise really well, this need to fit things into a model because of fear, because of, I guess the fear of abandoning a particular dominant paradigm. And to me, the, the, the climate crisis, I mean, and you can put many other different crises or historical moments in this, in, in that bracket, right? But the climate crisis, if it doesn't really upend and challenge some of your base worldviews, then I don't think you're really approaching it with, with the complexity and dignity that, you, that it deserves. I think what often people want to do, and the example of like plant acts of trees is people want to boil it down to like, give me the two, three solutions. or What are the two, three things you can do at home to solve this? And that's the thing, the climate crisis is, if we want to develop an ecological paradigm, I mean, the basis of ecology is that not only is the world more complex than you think, it's more complex than you can think. So you immediately start to have to get humble. 
and realize exactly that a tree is not a tree in different locations, that, um, that building a different energy system that's renewable is not just replicating a fossil fuel system. It means building other kinds of relationships. It means realizing, for example, that if we're serious about the impacts of climate change, the impacts of climate change don't depend just on the severity of the weather. They depend on the severity of the social injustice that the weather meets on the ground. So we have to be transforming so many different things, not just the things that drive climate change. And that means that we have to become fluent in climatology, but also in, in, in housing, in inequality, in, in poverty. Like we have to be able to be humble and interested in so many different things and look at this from multiple perspectives. And that is deeply unsettling to the status quo. And it's deeply challenging to a mindset of separation or a mindset of control, of simplification. Um, but what I'm really interested, Joey, what you mentioned, like this idea that our imagination is rooted in memory um, and that in a way trapped sometimes by the, our, our memory of our experiences, especially experiences of deep chronic historical trauma. Um, and I'm interested, yeah, like, like your approach towards solar punk, for example, is a stream of futurism. I'm really curious also recently about the idea of play, like how we can get people to look beyond the strictures of what they might have experienced. And this is on an individual level and on a societal level, it expands. But play to me is so crucial as, as a kind of almost like an organizing principle of how we work and what we need for society. And we know that play is rooted in um, a healthy imagination, a capacity to feel safe and trying and experimenting and doing things differently, which is obviously um, compounded or, or really, really constrained by trauma or by, by, by particular experiences. Um, but I'm curious, yeah, what, how has solar punk come into your life? And I'm also curious, I think for a lot of folks, you know, one big paradox that we have to, we struggle with is the, the, the distinction between us as our individual lives and our collective lives. And often I think we can talk about these great futuristic ideas and they feel very often, sometimes for a lot of folks, aloof and like another possible world. But I'm curious also, if it's not too intimate, like how has solar punk also changed you, maybe your life, if it has, you know, on, 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 in your, on a world of the scale of you and your body, if that makes sense. Solar punk, I, I came across it kind of by happenstance on this podcast. Uh, I think the first time I had actually heard about it was Emmy Bevancy. And as I said, in the end, I asked folks to recommend stuff, like recommend books. Um, and Emmy had said, I think at some point, like anything Afrofuturist or solar punk is something that they are interested in. Um, I forgot the exact quote that they mentioned, but something along the lines of, um, because I'm, I'm impressed or I'm humbled by people who still think about, still imagine positive futures, mm. uh, given the reality of our world. And this was like two years ago, uh, two and a half years ago, in the beginning of the podcast, I think. So the pandemic was uh, relatively new. It was definitely at, at a moment of what felt like a sort of a reckoning um, or could have been sort of a reckoning. But for me, 2020 was like the pandemic, but the explosion in Beirut. Those those are the two things that 2020 for me was. And also my going into, at the time, I didn't quite understand it that way, but eventually I would like my going into exile because I left in 2019, end of 2019 to come here in Switzerland. And it, it felt kind of wild, really. I arrived here early 2020, actually. And I just have this memory and uh, it's, it's connected to solar punk, but I'll try and explain myself. Like on New Year's uh, 2019, 2020, I was with some friends uh, in the mountains in Lebanon. And I remember very well, um, I was still struggling with uh, technology addiction back then. So I was on Twitter at some point. And at, it mentioned that like, it was one of those breaking news of like um, 
um, suspicious cases of pneumonia, whatever it was called, identified in Wuhan or something along those lines. And I just remembered me and a couple of friends um, who also, I, I did my undergrad in, in environmental health, with, which included epidemiology. We just looked at each other and said, this looks really bad. And we, we almost chuckled at the idea like, this just looks really bad. And, you know, fast forward barely eight months after that, and a pandemic obviously was ravaging, cross, you know, uh, spreading out throughout the world, and the, which affected Lebanon as it did everywhere, but affected specifically Lebanon with an economic crisis that was already there and that just made it worse. And to kind of add the cherry on top of the cake, the explosion happens on the 4th of August of, of 2020. And my PhD at the same time was already about memory. It was the topic is is called, I think, Hauntings and Temporalities in Post-War Lebanese Cinema. And it's about not just the past, but it's past heavy. It's a lot about the the impact of the past, the legacy of the past. Uh, how, what is the past? Like, are we even beyond the past? I.e., is the present something completely separate from the past? And that, again, through the haunting framework, um, a couple of the episodes that would have been released before this one, we get into it a bit more. And so it kind of felt in, in some sense like the explosion forced me to stop because it that's what it was. It, it in, in a very brutal and violent way, it stopped time. It fell in and there is this imagery of the clock at 6.07 p.m. Uh, because that's when the explosion happened. And a lot of the clocks obviously were destroyed at that time. So it's kind of like time was frozen. And it that that event in itself felt very haunting. Uh, because I was studying ghosts and hauntings and phantoms and whatnot, and suddenly you have all of those images that I've been studying in the the movies that I was that were produced in the 90s, early 2000s, and suddenly you have this re- just thing that happened in real real time, right? And it's so it's by necessity that I was looking mm. for alternatives to that. It felt like the past became overwhelming, trapped us. We we were not on it. We were unable to get out of it. We had a moment at the end of 2019 with the uprising in Lebanon to kind of open up that world. And then with the explosion, what happened, Lara Bitar, who's a Lebanese journalist, she said, she described it as evaporated euphoria. And I was, you can say like, I was kind of curious as to where did it evaporate to, right? Like literally, where is it? It's something that evaporates, it goes somewhere. It's, it doesn't disappear into the ether. When you smoke, the smoke goes somewhere. You don't see it anymore, but it's been dispersed in the air, right? And so I wanted to think of like, okay, well, where is that euphoria mm. now? And in my view, and obviously the academics and the others that I've been studying, it's there somewhere. It's there as a haunting quality. It might have a haunting quality. It becomes a what if. It becomes something that we end up con- contrasting, you know, or, oh, we could have been living this way had we succeeded, right? Like we could say these things. And that in and of itself, the, these thoughts... Uh, which can be reproduced at a kind of a cultural and social level, end up affecting how individually we relate to the present. And so that that that's kind of the link between those two. And Solapunk for me is just one of those ways. And I think it's one of the best ways because it intersects the climate mm-hmm. crisis. It kind of brings it in, in conversation with the um, quote-unquote politics, i.e. like to really try and have a practical, um, how to say like, arguing that we need to be very practical about the climate crisis while at the same time be very visionary and utopian about it like those two have to coexist at the same time because as we know we're kind of plagued with the with the poverty of the imagination in many ways when it comes to the 
what we should do, how we should imagine our futures and whatnot. Um, and in order to do that, we need to also not just lose ourselves in that utopian futurism, but bring it back to our current moment and uh, work to affect that current moment using those visions as kind of like almost like you're, you're building a number of horizons to go towards. And maybe you never get there, but you need mm. something to go towards, essentially. That's that's super, super beautiful. It reminds me of that just final point that you've made reminds me of this great anecdote where the the legendary Uruguayan author Eduardo Galeano was on a panel with another an Argentine film director called Fernando Virri, and a student in the audience asked them, What's the purpose of Utopia? And Galeano says, Look, that's too complicated a question of me. And so Fernando Virri, this filmmaker, sits and says, Give me a minute. And then uh, Fernando, after a minute, replies, look, he's like, look, I think utopia is like the horizon. You walk two steps towards it, the horizon moves two steps back. Uh, you walk three steps towards it, the horizon moves three steps back. Yeah. And so what's the point of that then? Well, it's exactly that. So you, so you keep on walking. And I think this, I, I mean, I'm still sitting with this metaphor of evaporated euphoria. And I'm, and I'm also just sitting with a challenge. I mean, in so many contexts, what does it look like to recrystallize, to bring that euphoria back? How do you animate people, you know, in a... In a I mean, there's the Lebanese context. I mean, we, we, we straddle so many different contexts between us. And then there's the planetary context. Mm -hmm. But for so many folks, going back to what we started, which is in a rhythm of relentlessness, you know, you, it's hard to dream or hard to imagine if you're at a pace of just reaction all the time. Um, and if, let alone if you're just in the pace of reaction all the time, if your political horizons promise little beyond, you know, deep dystopia, it's very, very difficult for you to ground yourself in possibility especially also if you don't, if your material circumstances mean that every day is, is, is a struggle, um, constant struggle. Um, so yeah, I'm just sitting with, at least I'm, I'm curious on what do you see as potential horizons for people to find ways of, of bringing hope down? Um, I mean, to me, there's so many. I think there's the importance of talking about healing, the importance of talking about um, our bodies also as spaces of, of struggle and, and building. Um, the importance of, of finding play and joy and, and moments of euphoria, as, as difficult as it might be in our own lives, and using those as possibilities of, mm -hmm. like, of emotional contagion as well, of, of, of getting people animated about political possibility. But then also, I mean, there's some serious work to be done in territories all around the world about recovering what it's like to, to have flourishing territories. And what I'm also sitting with, and I'm going back to our journey to Coimbra as well, so many of the landscapes around the world that just also have also been seen evaporated memory where where the ways of relating to a territory the diversity of a territory the ways in which people could exist in the landscape with an impact that was um co-nourishing um so much of that has been lost and especially in some of the um the sites of the global north of intense prosperity as well that's taken hand been hand in hand with just full-on violent assault and clearance of all ecologies um, to, the, to the extent where you almost have nothing left, right? So I'm sitting with just how, where do you see as, as real possibilities for people to go in that process almost of um, unevaporating that euphoria, yeah. if I can use the metaphor. So obviously, um, part of it, like just thinking of Coimbra, we, we learned about the eucalyptus trees while we were there and how they kind of became this monoculture. And I think one of the folks who was with us, one of the academics, called them like they're not forests, they're tree plantations, right? And those those kinds of um, 
it kind of let's let let me put it this way. Kind of when mentioned before, like a lot of the solutions that are sort of being proposed these days is that we just need to plant stuff. We just need to have X amount of trees, and it's basically it doesn't almost doesn't matter basically, or it really doesn't matter in that discourse which trees we're actually planting. And but it matters which tree we're planting because there are trees in a different ecosystem, and trees function differently. Obviously, Tree, trees are incredibly complex in ways that we barely understand as as humans, and. I found it very interesting that I think, if I'm not wrong, if I just think that Coimbra example, just as kind of a mnemonic aid uh, for, for me to try and answer this, I think most folks who, maybe maybe not folks who are from there or from around the day, maybe they know, but I think I would, I would believe, I would, I would like, I think I would think that most folks in Portugal don't know the history of the tree plantations, for example, or don't know what Portugal looked like I don't know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, and whatever. And again, this isn't to say that that would be enough because we can then fall into a trap of, oh, we just need to go back to the good old days or whatever. And that has a lot of very dark resonances when it comes to nationalism and that sort of thing, as we know. And that's not the point, really. The point is to just acknowledge or to to kind of sit with, recognize that we live in a particular moment of history and nothing is written in stone, i.e. that in the same way as something was changed uh, for the worse, other things would change for the better. You gave, we gave the example of the Amazon. That's an example of something clearly that was changed for the better. Mm. Uh, and better by, we can obviously debate philosophically what is better and what is worse, but just better in the sense of things have become more diverse, have in, have literally, quite literally, there is a increase in, in diversity and the, the richness of a place increases, if we can use that. Mm. And we know that the model that is, so if you consider that to be a model, let's say. The other model, which is quote-unquote ours, the one that we live in, the most places in the global north and a good the significant percentage of the global south as well these days, through globalization and neoliberalism and all of that. Um, one of those two models, and here again I'm simplifying just for the mnemonic um, aid, one of those two models is has had some good results, their, mo- their model, quote-unquote, and our model clearly is having bad results. Mm. So if we were in a supposedly a rationalist culture, one that values uh, bringing in as much data as possible and changing our habits to fit that data, that's supposed to be one of the basic principles of rationality and, and, and scientific mm. principle in many ways. If that was the case, we clearly wouldn't be where we are today because we have known where this is going for some time now, but all we've done really is not just not do much about it, but actually accelerate the pace of destruction. We know that since the COPs started, the, the, the what does COP actually stand for? Uh, Conference of Parties. Yes. Uh, since they started, investments towards fossil fuels actually went up. And so that is clearly irrational to use that term. And yet it is quoted in quote unquote, realistic or being realistic, right? And so what does that mean? And again, we had did a number of episodes that will come out before this one, like talking about capitalist realism, Mark Fisher, that sort of thing. But what does it mean to be realistic? And that's what I'm trying to challenge. And you can do that through, through, through stories, through conversations, through pointing out very, very practically. People need often, I've, I found, and I certainly am, am this way as well, 
it's one thing to tell someone, oh, we need to do this and this would be nicer, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a commune, utopia, you know, utopic commune and whatnot? Oh, that would be nice, like the Shire. And, you know, most folks don't disagree with that necessarily. They can see how this feels nice and this, oh, well, I won't have to worry about rent. Everyone has health care. We can take care of one another. That doesn't seem like a bad thing. Most folks would have no issues agreeing that this feels better than the current world we live in but it feels somehow unrealistic. And that, and I'm not saying a communist city is how we should all live, but in the sense that those alternative visions of what life can be like feel unrealistic. And my contention is that the realist, realism is an ism, it's a belief. And it's, it's a social construct. And as it can be constructed, it can be deconstructed. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things from haunting to solar punk to understanding our, our uh, how do you call it, biocultural bi memory, for me, those are ways of grounding myself in reality, actually being quote unquote more realistic um, and taking it seriously. You mentioned play before, right? And play has this, has this characteristic of being relegated to the unserious, right? Like, okay, it's, it's nice to have a hobby, but you, you, you can't live out of it. That's not realistic unless you're very lucky and you're good at, what you, at that hobby, let's say. Mm. But for most folks, it's like, well, I'm doing this hobby. And I think many folks would, would, would have realized by, by at some point that when they're doing this hobby is when they're actually very happy, or at least they're happier compared to, let's say, going to work. Generalization here. But like, let's say, let's say this is true just for just or entertain me. <laughs> Um, I think that in and of itself speaks a lot. This relegation, this division between the serious and the unserious, and here I'm simplifying a bit, says, has a lot to do with how things are institutionalized even at a young age. I've been getting, and I'm going to hopefully do an episode soon on that, the concept of youth autonomy, unlearning, uh, unschooling, that sort of thing, or alternative schoolings, maybe we might, we, we might call it. And how like from a very, very young age, we are already standardizing certain norms that then become internalized and then become or feel natural, realistic, all of these buzzwords and quotation, of course. But if we're kind of this alien species looking down at the human species, and we, when we haven't internalized the things that the humans who grew up in that system have internalized, there's no reason why those aliens would conclude that this is the best way of doing things. Yeah. You know, because the assumptions would not be the same, presumably. So, you know, I see how you can play with these things and play pun on that, but you can play with these different concepts or different ideas. And that's why for me, like, I, I genuinely argue that when I watch something like Star Trek, I do so with the same seriousness and I'm putting seriousness in quotation, but same seriousness generally as I do when I'm reading an IPCC report. Mm. Like I, I generally, I, I'm generally, I'm, I'm, I'm not lying when I'm when I say that. It's it's really the attitude that I adopt, and it doesn't mean like it. How do I put how I put it this way? It doesn't mean that uh, the IPCC is less important than Star Trek. I, I don't care about these kind of comparisons. But the IPCC and the IPCC authors themselves, including Julia Steinberger, who I've had on this podcast a number of times and I've interacted with and I've been on panels with, the climate scientists themselves have been basically saying that we need something beyond just science in order to change things. That's why they are getting arrested now. They are uh, going on hunger strike here in Switzerland. We had one case, uh, Guillermo is his name. Um, and, you know... They, we wouldn't be needing climate scientists going on strike, going on hunger strike, stopping highways and whatnot, 
if we were living in a quote-unquote realistic society. Mm. Our society is extremely unrealistic, or our political system, let's put it that way, is downright suicidal at this point, if we can use that term. Yeah. And so for me, this realization, and at some point, once you then internalize that, it's almost like a matrix thing. <laughs> like, it stops working. It's just, it, it's not that I don't also have to to live by those rules and regulations, I need a salary, I need to follow a career, I need to do this X and Y and Z in order to survive. I still live within capitalism. But it's almost like now I understand what kind of a prison that is, mm. how, how restrictive that is. Mm. And and that that is the main difference. And I think there is a there is an argument, there's something to be said that through that realization, through that understanding, it can feel liberatory. So it doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean that I don't deal with you and I are in this chat group on eco-anxiety and climate anxiety. So I have it. I have this. I have grief. I have depression. I'm on antidepressants. Like, I I go through difficulties as well. Uh, it's By no means am I making the argument that if you open your mind, you will just free yourself or whatever. No, you're still confined by a number of very restrictive and, frankly, authoritarian practices, violent practices, and the systems of, of um, capitalism, basically, and patriarchy and all of these things. Um, but in order to even hope that we can get beyond them, we need to be doing the work of picturing these alternatives, quite literally picturing them in our minds. Mm. So yeah, that was a bit of a long response, but that, that's sort of how I play with it, how, how I kind of being becoming comfortable with open-ended questions and kind of blurry alternatives and blurry visions, i.e. they're not very concrete yet, you know, they're not... That they don't necessarily make sense, but it doesn't mean that I'm gonna cast them away. I'm gonna just leave them there somehow, uh, pin pin that, you know. And maybe you get back to it once you have m more data, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think oh, there's so much to to sit with from from what you've said. I think I think what you're hinting at as well is also just reflecting on the question of liberation. What does it mean mm -hmm. to at this moment? What does liberation look like? And that that's a question that's far beyond me or anything I know or my experience, but I think from, from people I admire, from elders, it's so, it's opening our horizons, it's stretching ourselves towards, you know, this Gilmore idea of rehearsing freedom, rehearsals of freedom, mm -hmm. finding ways in our daily lives and in, in our communal lives to stretch people, to get people to, to, to shake a little bit some of these, um, some of the systems that we live in. And I love the way that you bring it back to like what you were talking about in terms of the schooling system and the way in which we're schooled for obedience and also for conformity. One thing that I'm quite interested in, a question that I've sat with for many years is having been involved in many movements and worked for many organizations is how very quickly particular logics just become dominant within organizations and ways of working, highly bureaucratized, highly planned, highly quote-unquote rational or scientificist ways of thinking and being and moving. And I find it astounding how we keep on replicating often the things that we're trying to really, really dismantle, but just how overpowering often they are. And I think partly, I mean, there's so many reasons for it, I, and I don't know enough either, but I think the undervaluing of play, the undervaluing of surprise and spontaneity and awe and spirituality and all these other quite challenging logics, um, not even logics, but like just ways of being in the world, um, I think it's so important that we begin to cultivate them. And I think a culture of urgency asks you immediately to be like, what are the, what is, what's the one thing I can do? What's the two things I can do? Or do I leave this with? I need something to do. Exactly. It's like, wait, maybe some of the most important things to leave with is actually that, that, that um, unnerving, that like sense, as you said, of like blurring of the vision. And I think that's, that's what I'm increasingly pulled towards is also from an ecological perspective, at least, 
getting people to become more sensitive to other beings in the world and how they move in the world and what, what can we learn from the way that, that trees organize? What can we learn from the way in which, you know, um, fungal networks move and mobilize? What are the things that we have to be humbled by and learn about organization and, and, and transformation in the world? And as soon as I think you dip into that space of listening, things become very, yeah, you become challenged very quickly and things are quite unclear and, and, and the possibilities of what you can do as a human become more nebulous. But I think that's a very fertile process and one that uh, can help people to find new spaces to anchor their lives. And also, at least if, you know, often what trauma does is just overpowers the imagination. It just destroys your capacity to imagine yourself as anything different. And we need that as to invest in our imagination, to, to, to have a healthy sense of aliveness and play, I think is indispensable for any radical political vision. Exactly. I, you know, this is going to sound funny at first, but um, I've been really curious and it's kind of become this experiment that I'm doing. I would watch a TV series, right, uh, on Netflix mm. or whatever. And because now I'm sort of tuned <laughs> to that or like kind of looking for these patterns, I think I've, I've kind of realized that in all of, or at least the series that I'm thinking of, I'm talking about popular ones that many people would have watched, like Friends, Seinfeld, um, I don't know, The Office, whatever, Community, uh, or like those are like kind of lighthearted comedy stuff, but other stuff, Guillermo Girls, um, The Sandman, almost anything really that I'm watching these days of I've watched. The thing that kind of brings people together, even in those stories that are not utopian, right? Like, I don't know, if you if I think of The Office, there's, there's nothing utopian about it. It actually mocks, in many ways, uh, the world we live in. But the, the nice things about that, kind of those bonds that they're creating, is when they don't take what they, what they do very seriously. I.e., like, yeah. in, in some sense, you know, there's a couple of them, we don't even know what they're doing in that office, like they don't have a, a, def, a definite uh, job position. The job positions change a lot. Um, they don't seem to actually like it. And the only person who likes it is kind of the, the guy who, who's seen as the, like Dwight, he's the, like the, the comic relief in some sense. And he takes it a bit too seriously. And there's even jokes within the series that, well, actually his ancestors were Nazis and this is why he's so into, he's so into like order and whatnot. So they play around with all of this, but just that and other examples, I can give so many examples like Gilmore Girls. And for me, because me and my wife, we were really into it at some point. Um, what's kind of beautiful about it, I mean, I mean, it's problematic in many ways, as as most things are, but what's kind of beautiful about that world is that Stars Hollow, which is that, that town in Connecticut or something in the US, um, there is a town hall or town meeting. They have this town meeting every re, re, at regular times, and they always complain about it, but they always go to it. They always complain how pointless it is and how the guy, the main mayor or whatever, he's kind of a douche, but they, they like the ritual of always going there. And Again, it's it's there are no brands there. There's no McDonald's. There's no whatever. It's kind of a community, and it's still capitalistic, right? Like there's still a hotel. There's an inn. There's a cafe and whatnot. But those are like the placeholders for because this is to be realistic. You quote unquote, you have to create a setting that most people who already live in this world can identify yeah. as like, oh well, I can see this. But then you make it actually nicer than most places that most people these days are living in by having a community. And community, the TV series, again, same thing, is that they're, they're, the thing that they're actually doing in that community school d doesn't actually matter as much as the fact that when they are together, the things that they're building. And we see this time and time again that in 
these TV series that in order for them to have an audience, they have to appeal to us. And of course, you can do this well and you can do this badly and it can be a shitty thing that appeals to us for, for you know, because it's, we can't get our attention away from it because it's so bad. But it can also be that it makes you feel some kind of bond with the people who are in that TV series, right? Like that, that emotional connection that people have when they watch movies and series and read books and whatnot. Mm. And the thing that's in it is often nuggets or like a, a a potential there that is actually liberatory yeah and another example i think of is that in in um i'm spacing out but i think in friends at some point uh one of them is unable to pay rent so he just lives with uh the person who's able to pay rent or something like that it becomes a joke that oh i think it's joey basically he can't pay rent because he's an actor and whatever so chandler is the one who's paying rent and that's not a capitalist way of doing things yeah they just they just practice some form of mutual aid there without actually thinking about it or acknowledging it for what it is it's just oh but this is what friendship is about and those basic bonds that we have friendship uh family when family is not toxic uh love or you know other relationships that we may have they they are often damaged when we introduce these hyper uh, uh, authoritarian hierarchical capitalistic way of doing things they, they actually damage them mm. oh you know oh you're my friend don't worry about that i'll pick the tab maybe you pay for it next time it doesn't become a you know purely mathematical thing right yeah but this this purely mathematical thing is how the economy is structured and so we have this huge tension between the things that we think of as nice the family and i'm putting the family in quotation because obviously family can be very toxic and problematic as well but the healthy types let's say chosen families and families that are not toxic friendships lovers relationships whatnot that sort of thing the things that we know like as human beings we know we can't live without that's why the worst kind of punishments at the time was banish banishment right being banished from a certain town or solitary confinement being the worst one of the worst types of torture today mm. anyway i'm rambling too much but all of this to say like the we already, to some extent, we all already know that we need community. Yeah. Uh, we, we feel it. But there's a, there's a dissociation. There's, a, I think, a violent break between the thing that we know we need and being realistic, quote unquote. And if being realistic harms us, there's something wrong with that realism. It's not actually realistic, essentially. Yeah. Wow, what a, what a beautiful reflection. And I think... I think great to also use these examples of TV shows where I hadn't thought about it that much, but yeah, like what we're drawn to is the community and the play. When you look at what something like The Office, the reason that we love it is because I think often there's this dream that I wish I could live in this world, in my world of drudgery. Um, exactly. And I think on the like last e reflection- Even, yeah, sorry, yeah. like even what's kind of brilliant about it is that it's an office. Yeah. Like it's so, I don't, no one wants to live in an office. It's It seems boring, but what's, it kind of becomes fun and they kind of get to know each other and it kind of feels that, that when that when they go home, they're not going home. It's when they go to the office that they're going home. Yeah. And yeah. the function of that office, it kind of becomes irrelevant and actually becomes harmful. I.e., the reason why it's an office, the, the the fact that it is an office and it is like one branch of that paper company down the Mifflin and whatever, harms like interferes in their uh, community building and their friendship building, you know, yeah. and whatnot. Because they don't own the building until at some point, you know, that sort of thing. So anyway, yeah, just wanted to, like, even even offices, even something as non-community, as non-familial, non-friendship-based things, we still need that there in order to make them enjoyable. Because otherwise, if you were filming, I don't know, a TV series about an office that actually functions like an office, 
who the fuck would want to watch that? You know, it's it becomes so depressing. And like most people think that's what my office looks like. I don't want to watch that. Yeah. I need an escapism. Yeah. And so we imagine a better office. <laughs> Which, yeah, that's really interesting. Almost on the utopian possibilities of... And I'm, I'm thinking also of Superstore as well as another, I don't know if you've seen yes. it, but also as a very kind of very similar logic. What I'm struck with as well is like, well, first, like those, those almost TV series and films can be like, they can be deeply radicalizing if you approach them in the right yes. way. Um, but I'm also sitting with, you know, I, I was recently, I went to um, a workshop on play recently, um, which I had no idea about in Barcelona. And one of the things that happened was in order to make it work, there was one a, a rule that was given before we arrived. It was a full day of like basically meeting people that you've never met in your life before and it, to build a spirit of play. And I was like, I mean, I'm not the kind of person that usually does this. So I just did it to take a risk. But one of the first things they did was say, okay, the only rule is you can't speak. You're not allowed to speak for the whole day. You're going to be with other people. You're going to be playing, um, played all sorts of games, but without speaking. And it was fantastic because like I, we spent 12 hours with each other and you realize just, it made me realize many things, but one of them was, was um, the, just how many assumptions we make from speech about so many things, about education, about class, about just so many, so many different just prejudices that appear just on how people speak and how healing it is to almost remove or place that limit. And it got me thinking a lot about the importance of limits as an invitation to play, that unless we set limits, unless we, 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 we make, like physically make limits possible, then it's very, very difficult to make anything happen, especially things that are counter-hegemonic, especially things that we want to be different. And there's so many practices, I think, of, of in my life where I try and set limits and set boundaries. I think this is almost like a micro-metaphor on a larger scale of the things that we need as well in terms of dealing with the ecological crisis. We know that it's a crisis of an in, in, incapability to set limits, uh, an attempt to erase all limits of all kinds on the economy, on human productivity, on, on human life. Um, but it, it, it sits with me on the importance almost of like why... It's deeply important to, 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 to bring limits in. And with that comes sanctity, because sanctity is a great way of, of talking about limits. Um, and that can invite us towards playing. And, and, you know, like until we say this stops here, we can do this, but we need to, we, we stop this work effort right here. Um, then it's impossible to start to build the spaces where we can dream and to work um, unless we create limits in time or limits in behavior. Um, then, then I think we end up in a situation where, where, where these experiences of play and liberation become escapist experiences that we dip into rather than uh, practices, mm. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I just thought of a friend of mine called Yumna. Uh, shout out, I'll, I'll send this to her. <laughs> but uh, she, she, she uh, part, I think her part-time or full-time job, I'm not sure, but she's a clown. She actually does clowning. Amazing. And I found that, like, I... I it challenged my own assumption. I have another friend, May, who also did that at some point. Uh, but it challenged my assumption of, of taking the, the ridiculous, quote-unquote, as just ridiculous, right? I.e. I, I, as something to be uh, cast aside, right? Oh, this is ridiculous, or this is childish, or whatever. And what, what, the example you just you just uh, gave is it's very interesting because if I understood correctly, because when we're in a certain situation, if we're told we can talk, right? then it's kind of ridiculous, right? Like there's something about it that's clownish, quote unquote, i.e. like it's it's a playful, right? Like in you're in a situation where, I don't know, you're, I'm, I'm imagining it, like you're in a room with like 10 people or 20 people or whatever, and you cannot talk, uh, but you have to play. And so I assume a lot of the, in the beginning is like, well, we're kind of just laughing at each other, how ridiculous all of this is. And just that alone, 
uh, ends up being a, a kind of a way of breaking the ice, right? Like the assumptions that we would have, or maybe like, uh, you know, I'm not a sociable person, or I can't communicate that easily, that sort of thing, um, becomes less important in many ways because what we're not talking anyway we don't have to perform in that in a certain way my accent doesn't have to show maybe my social class doesn't have to show uh, even my gender maybe doesn't have to show since i'm not talking you know all of these things mm -hmm. and and um yeah it it emphasizes doesn't it like the how how certain senses are primal or are treated as primal as uh, vision would be an obvious big one uh, in in our um, in society in general in, in in the worlds that we live, I think, and that's very interesting because part of what let's say solarpunk uh, can do, if if done well, I think, in the stories, the good stories that I've read, I've got some stories that were not that engaging, but those that I've read that were, is what 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 do we mean when we say like putting us putting a different imaginary or creating a different imaginary? It's not just like literally doing the world building uh, which is very fun and i encourage everyone to play with that as well but being being able like the good stories that really capture us and i, I can think of for example the lord of the rings because i was really into it growing up or even harry potter uh, pre jk rowling becoming what she is now um the strength of those stories is that you genuinely felt that you were in that world like i i i grew up roughly around the same time we have had almost the same age as the harry potter characters more or less uh, give or take a year or so and so you know 12th year i was 12 and hogwarts they're 12 and whatever and there was a very intimate bond being created one way one obviously between me and this fiction these fictional characters right mm -hmm. um and this was possible despite me later when i grew up and became older and wiser and whatever understood to be some of the problematic element of those stories lot of things as well for that matter mm -hmm. but if you it's not that you you shouldn't know these things you can still know these things and still be enchanted by the intricacies of world building and i guess we all of and kind of a, a through line in what we've been talking about is most people as I, I think I think I can make that claim of course I haven't met most people but I think I can make that claim that most people already understand like intimately uh, why something like mutual aid is a good thing and people do this naturally a community comes together when there is a catastrophe it's actually not how a lot of the movies often portray things because that's actually a reflection of what's called elite panic, which is an acad academic term. People can look it up. I should do something on elite panic one day. But elite panic actually runs the world in, in many ways. Those assumptions, those fears about overpopulation and people coming here and all of that stuff comes from that uh, worldview, not from quote-unquote being realistic. It's actually very unrealistic and it's very violent. And so me realizing i think at some point that there is actually a very basic human thing that when we're kids often here i'm generalizing because it depends on people's childhoods they're not all the same but in my case i sort of knew this somehow like it felt that it's 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 a good thing to be good <laughs> it's a good thing to not have greed and poverty and violence and you know very vague terms like that but as the kid like seeing it through through those eyes and at some point I had to cast all of that aside in order to become, quote unquote, more realistic. Mm. You know, I can't do this or this or that in life because you need to be realistic. You need to do this. You have to do a career. You have to go through certain steps. You have to build a CV. 
and were actually the school in, in many ways, as, as it's usually conceptualized. Of course, there are different types of schooling, some better than others. But usually, I went to like a lycée system, so kind of a French system, but in Lebanon. Um, it's very, um, it prioritizes memory over imagination, mm. rep repetition over experience, over experimentation. Uh, grades, obviously, you either are above 10 over 20 or below 10 over 20, and that actually defines you quite literally, you know, as I mean, everyone knows what I'm talking about. But these these forms of, of um, I think, to some extent, we can describe them as structural violence are embedded from a very early age, and not just from a very early age, but then at some point become re reified and reiterated and replicated in adulthood and until we die, essentially. And it's kind of, I think, ironic. And again, it's it goes back to the argument that to some extent we all understand this, that for many of us think these days the social contract, as it's usually defined, is that you work for a certain number of years, you pay your taxes for a certain number of years, and then you go on la retraite, you retire, right? And it's like, well, I can't enjoy some hobbies now, so I'll do so when I'm uh, 65 and above, right? It's like almost like when I'm in, at a certain age, then I can really enjoy my life. And that's a fundamental flaw in, in how societies function, that you need to wait six plus decades, um, depending on when you live, in some cases, seven decades, uh, in order to enjoy your life, assuming, of course, you even manage to go through the uh, three, four decades of uh, work, quote-unquote normal work, paying taxes, a career, all of that stuff, then maybe you can explore your love of Japanese or how you like knitting or, you know, whatever. Only then, you know? Or now you can do it, but as a hobby, like on the side, not as your main thing. Yeah. Unless you find a way to turn it into something profitable, into a business. And so we're stuck in those frameworks. We know what we enjoy. We, like, it's not rocket science. We know what things... You, we know what, what humans love, you know? We know what... We know that, again, the community thing, the, the play, we know that these things are nice and fun. And we think of them as nice and fun. But we kind of discard them or we make some kind of separation between what is fun and what is realistic. Again, I'm using that term a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I come back to hearing you. I come back to, that's, I think it's a great reflection that, that you say, that I've also heard David Graeber say this term, kind of baseline communism. This idea that like, mm -hmm like daily life cannot function without baseline communism like and also and which just from basic reproductive labor that's undervalued unvalued exactly. like it, it cannot function on the capitalist logic it's just no way that you can you can't optimize care you can't care more quickly for someone like these things just don't they destroy the capitalist logic and so you have to ignore them or devalue them or invisible exactly. um but i think alerting people and showing them that um, not only there's other ways of doing things, but we do them already. We do them instinctively because that's part of like what we need. Um, that love, the ethics of love can't work in conjunction with the ethics of domination, of, of true healthy love, you know? I mean, there's many, many sets of love. But um, I think it's, it's, it's all these places are almost threads that we can start to pull on and get people to think in ways that I consider more ecological and then to start campaigning in also ways that, that people can find more resonant with their daily kind of spiritual experience of the world. I think one mistake that the climate movement has made is, is to not speak poetically in terms of people's own lives, right? I think many of the things that we have to fight for from, from, from considerations in terms of, I don't know, um, living in a more carbon-constrained, resource-constrained world, you know, one thing that I think is a very powerful frame of organizing is talking about time poverty, mm -hmm. that we have the capacity to give, extend people to have more time in their lives, high-quality time for them to do things that they find meaningful, that liberation of time, um, that, you know, 
that some of the things that bring people most joy are the least resource intensive things. Um, just spending time with people, hanging out, playing, uh, making love, making music. These things are not, um, these things are not high carbon intensive things. Often resource intensive activities have to do with you being in situations where you, where you have very little time. So you need to do things very, very quickly. So for example, you know, build, if we built a society where we can have more communal food, um, production and consumption together in community, that literally decreases the amount of resources you need to make food instead of having everyone in atomized kitchens cooking separately for one peep, one person or for two people. Literally having communal experiences of food is reduces resource and energy use. Um, but we need to start talking. I think solar punk does this really beautifully is to try and um, put at the forefront, literally what does this look like for people's bodies, for people's experiences of the world? And I think, um, yeah, the, what, the labor of getting people to tap into their imagination, which at the end of the day is very realistic in the sense that we have the, the, this deeply sacred life world inside of our own minds. You know, we are an other to ourselves. We have this other imagination in us constantly, which is, can be beautiful and also difficult, all the voices in our head, that constant theater that we have. But we need to tap into people's own internal experiences of the world and to, 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 to show to them that on the other side of, of the mindset of fear is a mindset of possibilities, a mindset of, 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 of just incredible things happening. And I, I come back to, you know, Salvador Mignuchin was a you know, very famous Argentine psychotherapist. And almost he gave this very interesting definition of psychotherapy as, as the introduction of uncertainty into the space of someone's mind, right? Um, if you have particular stories that have this huge kind of stranglehold over you, what therapy can help you do and therapy of all kinds, right? It doesn't have to be one particular modality. It can help almost bring a bit of oxygen, a bit of uncertainty to try and give a bit of space for that story to loosen its grip. And I think that's also almost what our labor, I think, has to be is, is to what is the oxygen that we can bring to people? What is the uncertainty that isn't anxiety just inducing all the time, but an uncertainty which allows you to get into touch with possibility um, with your ancestors, but also with, with possibility of your life or futures. Um, I'm drawn to that work now of like therapeutic um, um, possibility. I think like part of what we're talking about is this, the process of commenting, like literally mm. creating the comments. Mm. And again, uh, the through line of, what, of, of this conversation is, I think the, one of the arguments that we're making or the core arguments is how common all of these things are and how to some, to a, a significant extent, no one or very few people actively disagree with that premise. Yeah. And so we understand, for example, I live, I live in Geneva, right? Or in Barcelona, let's say, or in Paris or whatever in cities that are uh, privileged enough, unfortunately, because those are the, the frameworks, that, that's, that, that's the world we live in, that has very good public transportation, right? A very basic, or should be very basic thing that is not actually as basic as, it, as widespread as it should be. And because I've experienced good public transportation, I know for a fact that a tram and a bus is, and a train is better than a car. I know this very easily because I see it every day. I see the 1,000 people going in those two, three, four trams from one place to the other. If they were converted into 1,000 cars or in 800 cars or whatever, I, can, I know what that looks like because I know Beirut, and that's what Beirut looks yeah. like. So I have those two contrasts in mind. And though what I know between those two is I can then contrast and compare and contrast 
uh, the anxiety that I would feel getting in a car in Beirut and having to calculate ahead of time and all of that stuff with just sitting in a tram and being able to read a book, for example, and still making that same distance, right? That same, so it's not just that it's more efficient, but it is in many ways more enjoyable or it can be more enjoyable. You mentioned time poverty. I, I wanted to pin this because I think a part of the trying to make it make these very difficult things that we're talking about or can seem very difficult, make them easier to digest, make them more playful, make, make them just more approachable. A is because I, I hate the elitism of certain academic discourses and whatnot, but B is because we need that. We quite literally need to make everyone, ourselves included, feel that we can actually change the world, right? Like it, it's a belief at the end of the day. We know this paradox that well if if all 8 billion people in the world believe the same thing maybe reality can change so we know that we kind of feel that way but like how do we do that right and of course it doesn't mean that we need one vision and that's part of the pluriverse approach right? Mm. but i think there is there's an argument to be made that many folks and i'm, I'm not gonna say i'm i'm divorced from that i think myself included to to a significant extent something i've been working on are afraid of that change Right, we're afraid of change in general. And that's why I love like Octavia Butler's uh, send the beginning of, of the parable of the sower. Like uh, the only constant is change. God is change. Right, like that. That's that's part of that novel. The beginning of I think the f very first paragraph. Um, and I think it 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 becomes kind of a self fulfilling prophecy. Right, we know the live the the life we live in. Right, there's a routine maybe uh, in many in many cases. It it becomes something that it's easier to just kind of um, kind of, you know, lower your head a bit. Don't complicate things. Don't rock the boat, right? It's easier to not rock the boat and just wait until the boat reaches a certain destination, or at least you tell yourself that. And, you know, when you reach that destination, maybe you can take a different boat, right? Like you can have that that thing. And unfortunately, the, what ends up happening is that the boat is just our entire lives, right? And that's part of the problem. It's not the entire problem. It's part of the problem. And that's what I mean, or that, what we mean, I think. We agree on this. When we say like imagination is really important and solar punk among other punks and among other topias and among other utopias, I mean, and among other genres, it's not just that Afrofuturism can do that, you know, allows us to to expand that the, the realm of what is considered realistic. And I emphasize the term realistic because I think we need to kind of hit the, the realism where, where, it, where it hurts the most in some sense. That because I think, again, most people in the discourse that we usually have within the English language, let's say, although it translates relatively well in other languages, would agree that these things are good, are nice. Utopia, cool, nice. I mean, by definition, almost, right? And happiness, that's a nice thing. Play is a nice thing. All of these things are associated with positive feelings, but they are not realistic. Mm -hmm. And the contention I think we should be making is that realism is not realistic. Yeah. Realism, the, what we think of as realism, doesn't actually exist. It's not, as we said, we know this for a fact, a scientific fact now, that the system, the world in which we live in, is going, is heading towards catastrophe. If it's heading towards catastrophe, it cannot, by definition, be realistic. It cannot be the best way to approach the, the world we live in, given that we are breaking it. And so, yeah, that, so you see, there's a link. I, I, you can play between like the office and talking about the apocalypse and solar punk and capitalism and liberation. Because at the end of the day, what this is in the realm of the imagination. And that, that's, that's what is meant, or that's what I mean, and others folks and yourself as well, mean by actually valuing imagination rather than accepting the divorce that happens at some point in our lives. 
between imagination and memory, realistic, unrealistic, all of these things, right? And this isn't rocket science. Like folks have been doing this. This is this this is what when you know the 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 best kinds of indigenous politics have been talking about this for quite some time now. This is what Harriet Tubman herself mentioned, as, as you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, th- that there has to be a vision of liberation in order to. Uh, I think if I remember, I, I think it's her who said this that a part of how she was able to persuade enslaved people to leave is to tell them that there is something better on the other side. Mm. Because a, a difficulty, obviously, is not that enslaved folks did not know that slavery is bad. Obviously, they knew this. It was just very difficult to believe that there is something better anywhere else. And obviously, a good part of that is because there wasn't anything better anywhere else, at least nothing reachable, nothing feasible for them to do so because they were trapped in there in that in that horrific situation. And she was she was the one who was able to show them uh, through action, through quote unquote violence, right? Mm. That she that there is actually a better way out of that. A, 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 sorry, that there is a way out of that of that situation. And obviously, you know, she did what she could. She wasn't able to help free everyone, of course. But she, that's why she's, I think, one of the badass people uh, in history. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I think yeah, that that um, there's so much. I think there's so many places to to move that are like like. Talking about the imagination, I think, is, is, is unifying. I think it allows us to speak to people where they're at and to build political conversations, not from the place of convincing people, but from really, you know, asking someone, what is it that you care about? What is it you, that you, you aspire towards? Like, what are your deprivations? What do you crave for? And, you know, I don't want to be too romantic about what it means to talk, you know, this kind of like, quote unquote, talk politically across the spectrum or how to talk to others. You know, I think that there's a lot of stuff that, that I, I think is very problematic with that discourse. But I think the imagination can be very unifying in a way that other things can't be. Um, and it allows us to speak in ways that I think, you know, there's a beautiful poem by Yehuda Amahai, which is like, um, from the place, that, which I'm going to paraphrase the poem, but it's like, from the, it's called from the place that we are right. And it's like, from the place that we are right, very little can grow. But the place that we're unsure, the place that we're wrong, the place that we don't know is fertile, um, is, is all things can grow. Um, and I think so. I think there's there's lessons in terms of movement building of what we can do there, um, but I also think there's just a broader invitation towards um, towards just moving beyond seriousness. I, 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 Eduardo Galeano has this beautiful um, beautiful kind of essay called "The Right to Dream," which is often translated as "The Right to Utopia," and he has this um, kind of utopic reflection on all the transformations going to happen in the world, and one of them is like we're gonna. God is going to do an edit of the Ten Commandments. Um, one of them will be edited, and it will be uh, um, there will be a new edition, which will be um, you will you will love nature that you are part of, and another one, um, different prohibitions on the body will be edited um, to to say uh, you will love your body because it is a carnival. Um, and I think just these invitations towards ecological belonging, but also towards somatic love and somatic you know like putting the body on the table which so many incredible feminist movements have done and beginning to think about ways in which we can as Galeano says start making solemnity into a virtue and to start dealing with play as a political principle um I think that the imagination helps us go there helps us tell stories it helps us just become more fun and more humane more and more accessible to folks I think if anything that academic theorizing does is just literally just evacuates all kind of play or or often accessibility uh, from the from the conversation. 
So I'm excited that we, I didn't think that we'd end up speaking about play, but I'm excited. I think it's, a, it's telling that we did. It is. I think so. I mean, I, I tend to, as you know, uh, by now, I tend to like uh, quoting Baldwin, James Baldwin. Of course. And there's one, um, what was it? Let me remember. Um, he was asked, like, do you have hope, right? And he, he responded something along the lines. People can find it it's on YouTube. Like, I, I have to have hope because not having hope is kind of accepting that life is an academic matter. Hmm i.e. that uh, life is just something to disconnect from, that there is no point in changing things and whatnot, that, again, it would be unrealistic, yeah. right, quote-unquote. And I find that very powerful. And here's this other thing. We talked about time, right? He has this uh, brilliant intervention at some point. Like, he was asked, uh, like, there's been a lot of improvements uh, for the, at the time, they would say, for the Negro, for the African-American uh, in our in our lifetime, it was like the fifties, nineteen fifties, right? You can immediately see as soon as that question was asked that he was he was angry at the question, uh, James Baldwin. And uh, then at some point he responded something along the lines of like, "How much time do you need?" Because he was saying like, "It's already taken the time of my father, my my grandfather, my mother, my my sister, uh, my niece. It's taken all of our time. How much more time do you need for your progress?" Mm. And that's how he put it. And that's kind of that's kind of the issue, right? I mean, that's that was specifically in his context, of course. And the, it was in the context of the the the, the civil rights movement at the time in the in the US and and so on. But that that sentiment is a pretty generalized one. Like how much more time from the perspective of an indigenous uh, activist, an elder, let's say, who um, for them, re re being realistic is actually to, to look at the 15th century as this, the time when the apocalypse started, the 1492 as the beginning of the apocalypse. How much more time are the rest of us, you know, I'm kind of simplifying a bit, gonna take in order to understand that the apocalypse is not just what we are currently experiencing, but many peoples around the world have already experienced an apocalypse, slavery as an apocalypse, indigenous struggles as resisting an apocalypse, uh, abolitionism as resisting an apocalypse, you know, etc., etc. All of these things. Time is not something to just um, take for granted, right? It's something that needs to be acted upon. And sometimes it has to be broken, <laughs> has to be uh, actively challenged, has to be bended in a certain way and whatnot. And I think it's one of the through lines of this conversation. Now, all of that being said, um, we need to find some bizarre way of wrapping up because that's not that's going to be difficult. But I think this conversation sort of, sort of shows that, and something I enjoy doing with you especially, that we would start with one thing and then end up somewhere I have no idea how we ended up in. But what this kind of tells us as well is that we'll have these different chapters in this conversation and maybe one day we can explore different chapters more in depth and whatnot. But so I'll... I'll kind of leave you to have the final reflection, you know, share whatever you want to share. And then, uh, or you can do this at the same time if you want, go through the, the three book recommendation that I ask all guests uh, to do at the end of, a, of an episode. So take it from there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Joey. Um, I just, yeah, just super, super honored and humbled to be here, um, to be in a space that so many incredible people that I admire have been in also before. Um, and to me, this, I mean, we've been on so many threads, but to me also that's deeply ecological. I mean, ecology is about all the connections that sustain the world. And I think from, from a spiritual perspective, you know, at least the spiritual background that I come from, there's deep belief that, you know, you can look at anything in the world and see the whole of the world and that little thing. Um, so I think it's 
being lost or finding our way through through very very messy conversations is just a form of precision, I think. Um, so I'm grateful to have such spacious conversations with you. Um, I'm invited, so I think I'm going to bring three three books that I think that have come to me just in this conversation. Um, I, w- I wanted to ask if it's possible to give four or five, but I think there's a rule of three. Hey, hey. There's a rule. Of three. There's no rule. There's no rule. There's no um, rule. I would so I, I would start with um, the incredible uh, philosopher Ailton Krenak. I don't know how much there is translated into English from Ailton Krenak, but I think in English it would be ideas for the end of the world, um, ideas to postpone the end of the world. Probably better in English. But Ailton Krenak is a is a Krenak indigenous philosopher from from the land of Brazil, and just is an incredible thinker for our times. Like one of the pe- top five people I would recommend and understand how to think and um, and de- de- dethrone what he calls the mentality of devouring. The con- colonial mentality is a mentality of devouring. Um, and also to understand that there's a beautiful reflection that Kanak gives, which I'll just share here because I think it's unmissable, but it's like, you know, Kanak's reflections that white people are obsessed with books because they are steeped in a culture of oblivion. Um, and oral memory is so important to also value, not just books and how we maintain stories alive. I would go also then, so Ailton Krenak, uh, Ideas to Postpone the End of the World. Um, there's an incredible book called Undrowned, uh, Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals by Alexis Pauline Gomes. This is one of the most just spirit-blowing, instead of mind-blowing, just incredible books that I've read recently. It's it's a love letter of a book, and it's a it's a book of political teaching of marine biology and of poetry at the same time. And I think um, it's incredible. It's a beautiful, beautiful confluence. And to me, it's a compass of what uh, writing in this times look like. And I think maybe more in the political kind of tapping into the reason side of things a bit more. There's a really um, beautiful book called How the World Breaks um, by Paul and Stan Cox, uh, father and son. And I think it's a, it's almost like a analysis, anthropological, but also political analysis of uh, a bunch of vignettes of situations, mainly of, of climate violence, but also of other kinds of disasters around the world, and also how it's a window, I think, into what real disaster looks like on the ground from a very sober perspective of both the hope and the solidarity that's built, but also what disaster capitalism looks like in the 21st century. And so it's, I think it's a good, interesting window into prospects uh, um, for what this century could look like, what we can need to be aware of, and what we can resist. So that's how the world breaks. Um, and then just final recommendations. Um, to me, poetry is, is an indispensable tool of teaching for me. And I think some poets for our times that I would very much recommend would be three. Um, Joy Harjo, Ilya Kaminsky, um, and Dunya Mikhail. Um, uh, all of them bring, I think, uh, a capacity of listening and of attention to the world that I think is indispensable. So I stay with them. Thanks for that. And as always, uh, the recommendations that the guest has, I'll put them in the in the show notes and in the description. Um, okay, Daniel, I mean, all that's left for me to do is uh, thank you for, for this uh, amazing conversation. And as I mentioned before, I think we've basically created like eight other episodes <laughs> for the for the future. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But uh, yeah, thanks a lot for that. No, thank you. Thank you so much for your for your incredible mind and, and openness as always. Defy These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayou. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project, which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. 
As always, thank you for listening and take care.